You know, I think that as we get older as men, uh, more fear sets in that limits us to living a uh, most fulfilled life. I think that there's this notion of I've earned the right to do less. And um, so there's less activity and less movement and less um, less adventure because, of course, we don't want to get hurt. So the fear of getting hurt becomes more intense as we get older. And again, I think there's a limitation there to living our best life. Today, my conversation is with Akshay Nanavati, who has overcome drug addiction, PTSD from fighting in the Iraq war, um, depression, alcoholism, and He's been on the brink of suicide. Since then, however, he's embraced his demons by running ultra marathons, including 24-hour runs uh, and a 167-mile run across Liberia to help build schools. He has done many endeavors, uh, including 10 days in darkness and isolation. Um, he's become one of 26 people to ski up a remote glacier in Antarctica where he got frostbite and lost two of his fingers. This is all despite his having four biological defects, including a blood disorder that we talk about in this podcast episode, where you wonder how he's able to do all the things he does. Coming up, he has a 1,700-mile, 110-day expedition in, Ar in Antarctica, uh, all by himself never before accomplished. Our conversation with Akshay is about why he does what he does, what drives him. What would he do if he had a family? Would he participate in these extreme events? And how can the rest of us learn from him so that we can live a more fulfilled life by appreciating suffering a little bit more? suffering in a positive and healthy way. That is my conversation with Akshay Nanavati today. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. So why are we talking to Akshay Nanavati today? as it relates to prostate health, well, probably very little. If there's a connection, I don't know it yet, but probably more towards the connection of how to live better with age. Um, thanks for being on, number one. I think that I, it's such a privilege to have you. You Having you on is a, a, this is a whole different conversation, right? So I interview typically, you know, medical doctors, urologists, and so forth. And so this is a lot different. And I think this is likely one of the most important conversations we can have for many reasons. Before we get into your your event, your event that's coming up in November and into those details in and Antarctica, let me say this, you know, so a lot of the people that listen to me are middle-aged men or middle-aged plus men or senior men. And they're trying to live their best life. They're trying to live better with age. I find throughout my conversations with them that oftentimes they sort of think or have the idea that as I get older, I have, I want to do less. I want to be less physical or I've earned that right because I've worked for 30, 40 years and now I'm retired and I've earned the right to do less. In my opinion, that's probably a less than optimal way of living. I think that particularly if you're interested in crushing it as you get older, I mean, clicking in all cylinders, in your 70s, 80s, and perhaps 90s, you have to actually put work in and you have to, you have to stress your body, right? Because your body will respond favorably to too many stressors. So you have to do more. You, you take that to, to a little bit of an extreme. You have spent 10 days in darkness. You just came out of a fast, of a full fast. And while fasting in Arizona, you went hiking and running and did all kinds of activities during a fast at, you know, over 100 degree weather. I remember when I met you that you said, you know, that there is a, that there is a, there's a, there's a benefit. There's, it's like happy suffering. Your book is Fearvana, which is a great book that we'll have in our show notes. 
there is such thing as, you know, happy suffering, that you do this with intent, that at least, if I remember, if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, at least you have the option of suffering, of choosing to suffer, and there's benefit there. So why are you doing this? Why do you do this? And then eventually we'll get it soon into your trip to Antarctica, your, 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 your 1700 mile trip. But what's the reasoning behind all this yeah. for you? I think, you know, let's to answer that question as far as the why, let's start like why ultimately do anything, right? Like why do we do anything we do? And yeah. at the core of it, at the core of it, when we dig deeper beneath all the reasons why make money, why get the relationship, one could say to be happy, but let's put it more in fulfillment, right? Like we're seeking inner peace, fulfillment, uh, joy, whatever words you want to use. That's ultimately what we're seeking, all of us. And what I've come to learn through a lifetime worth of experience of having experienced great comfort, opulence, living a good life, and also experience the depth of suffering and hardship, both within and without, as in my own journey, battling PTSD, depression, addiction, coming back from the war, seeing it being in war zones and conflict zones, working with survivors of sex trafficking. You know, I've come to learn that the path to truly attaining that ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate fulfillment is by playing on the edges of the human condition. And when I say the edges, I don't just mean going into the edge of suffering as I do, like spending 10 days in darkness, running ultra marathons, talking about this journey, which we'll get to in Antarctica. I mean, pushing the edges because human beings, we think in contrast, right? My brain thinks of one thing in relation to another. We think in references to another. So those contrasts gives us perspective on life. And so to me, it's, it's not just about seeking the edge of pain. It's seeking the edge of pleasure. I'm seeking the edge of all dualities, right? In, in, the, in this human condition in life, there's a series of dualities. Life and death, light and dark, ego, humility, contentment, discontentment, fear, nirvana, pain, pleasure. There's a series of these. And if you really want to appreciate and amplify the intensity of this human experience and to feel more alive, to feel more bliss in the words of Joseph Campbell, right? Follow your bliss to feel that rapture of being alive. You got to play on the edges. You cannot truly know pleasure unless you know pain. You cannot really know the depths of happiness unless you know the hardship of sadness. And a very concrete example of this is when I came out of the darkness retreat, you mentioned, you briefly touched in, I did this extended period of time, one time seven days, another time 10 days, sitting in a completely dark room, cannot see your hand in front of you 24 hours a day. When I came out and the, and, and the first time I saw the light, I was, it was almost blinding. And I remember being moved to tears with the, with the way the world looked in those few moments. And I remember thinking, a deep sense of visceral gratitude for all the suffering I've ever experienced in my life because I realized in a very tangible way that I could never have seen the light that way, the way it looked in those few moments, unless I had first been in the dark, right? You can only really appreciate the luminosity of the light when you've been in the depths of the dark. So do you appreciate light more? Oh, do I you appreciate the sun more? more? I appreciate all of it more. Like, so these are things that we take for granted, likely. Exactly. You, when, you, when you really know what it's like to be without, you will appreciate what it's like to be with. I mean, coming out of a fast, I cannot tell you how good that first meal tasted. Even today, when I take a hot shower, I know it's all going to be gone. So playing mm -hmm. on the edges has been an access point to me, not just for a heightened sense of feeling alive, a heightened sense of gratitude for every bit of this human experience, including the hard times, because it's the hard times that make everything else so much more beautiful as well. But it also, it also just gives me, I mean, it's, in, it's enlightenment, it's transcendence, you know, the the suffering is the access point to transcendence, to tapping into the, the rewards of the human soul that cannot be unearthed without battling that dragon first. And so I seek bigger dragons to fight because they open doors to greater treasures. I love it. You know, if I didn't know you better, actually, I would say, God, this guy, like his upbringing was really messed up. Like he's trying <laughs> to heal from his upbringing. He grew up, I don't know, in the slums of India, I would think but I know better. Tell us a little yeah. bit about your upbringing. Yeah. I could not have had a better childhood. Great parents. They weren't extremely wealthy at the time, but certainly weren't pro poor, middle class. Now, my dad's not very, have done very well since then, but you know, great. They give, give me an incredibly good life. Whatever suffering they might have been endured in terms of financial struggles, I never felt. You know, So they gave me a fantastic life. I moved, I was born in India, lived in India, then Singapore, then moved to Austin, Texas at the age of 13. At about 15, 16, when I moved to Austin, I got very heavily into drugs, alcohol, lost two friends to it. I used to cut myself, burn myself. I still have these scars on my arm. Very what, selfish. What was, what was that about, actually? What would you say, you know, and I'm asking because I have kids. Yeah. And a lot of the listeners have kids or grandkids. You would say, yeah, I got into drugs because of what? 
So my parents have asked this, like, what could we have done differently? And yeah. not again, no traumatic childhood, not their fault. I got, I got into a world where like, I'm a person who clearly plays on the edge and drugs became my vehicle because I got into a group of friends and I don't, you know, as an adult, I take responsibility for my behavior. But at the time I was a very impressionable young child, moved to four different cities, three different countries at 13 years. So I was very impressionable, wanted to be cool. So got into a group of friends doing drugs. And so I was the one who wanted to push that line and play on that edge. And, you mm. know, my parents and me have talked a lot about this. They, you know, they said, what could we have done differently? I think, and it's not their fault. Like they, we all don't know what we don't know. They didn't know the things I do now, like all the outdoor sports that I do. They didn't know that was a thing people did. We grew up in a big city, right? But had they, let's say, pushed me into outdoor sports or had I gotten into it, I don't think I would have gone down that path. So the point is to say for a parent listening, it's like every child's got their, like, you know, I had a lot of energy that needed to be expended <laughs> doing now the things that I do and <laughs> channeling that, you know, what is the, what, what are the, what is that unique element of your child and how can you channel it, you know? How can you find that thing? And uh, and again, not their fault at all. They didn't know these things were even a possibility. Sure. But I think had I gotten into outdoor sports, had maybe either got into a friend's group who were doing that, or had I found that found that earlier, I would have gotten into that. And I would have gotten, like probably done the same things I'm doing now, but just got into it even younger and earlier. So to, so one of the things, and I talk about parenting a bit, uh, just yeah. because I'm involved with it uh, heavily and I I enjoy it. I stalled there because like, look, it's not enjoyable all the time, but I, I, I think it's the biggest job that I have. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that we try, we, we are very careful with too much idle time. So too much. Now with idle time, you can also think, you can also kind of get into your head, learn how to be comfortable with yourself. But there, most kids are not just meditating. They're with gadgets or with other friends or looking at websites or trying to, you know, do exciting things. They're trying to increase their dopamine somehow. Yeah. And oftentimes that leads to things that are not so great, which is why I think, you know, at participating in sports is it's a good thing. Right. Yeah. And letting your kids suffer. That's a big so, thing that parents make a mistake with. I have, so our kids are Generation X, right? So we have Millennials and then Gen X. And as an out, you know, as, not as an outsider, I'm, I'm as an insider. And then observing other kids and friends of, uh, kids of friends, there's, when we, when I talk to friends who are parents, so look, the kids are soft these days. Like they're just soft. Like they're any, anything, they're rattled or depression or anxiety. I think that a lot of it is our fault as parents. Now, if parents are listening to this, I don't shame. This is not a shaming thing. This is not a blaming. This is not a critique. I fail all the time as a, as a father. But if my 11-year-old is doing something crazy or something that's not, um, that we don't want him to do, it's not him, it's me. I have to take full responsibility. He's 11 years old, right? Okay. So... I think we need to take full responsibility. Um, and this notion of how can I get my kids to, as you frame it, suffer in a way that obviously they don't die, right? So there's that fine line. And the thing is, we don't know what that line is. So we're like, oh, no, don't do Don't suffer. No. But I think that we need to, like, I, I, like uh, there are many times with our daughters where I've said, honey, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel rejected. It's okay to feel unwell. It's okay to feel and learn how to deal and learn tools that are not through pharmaceuticals yeah. to deal yeah. with life's challenges and emotions and so forth. And the other thing I'll add to that is my vehicle, the vehicle that I know to help them, as I frame it, get punched in the face and learn how to deal with it is through sports. Yeah. I think sports is a great vehicle. Right? Yeah. Elbowed at soccer, get yeah. hit with a baseball, yeah. get hit oftentimes with a baseball, mm -hmm. figure that out. Uh, it's a it's hundred degrees and you're a catcher with this catcher's equipment. Yeah. You know, there is, um, there is an element. Now I think that parents are, uh, you know, they won't use that terminology like suffering because such a, we have uh, been taught that that's just a negative word, right? We don't want the kids to suffer. Yeah. You do use it intentionally. You do. And, and, and I do think there's a, and I do think it's to kind of summer it all up. I think, I do think there's a benefit from them 
what I would refer to as intelligent suffering and allow them to feel. What What are your thoughts on, on kids? If I, I know you don't have your own, but what are your? I know you have friends. What are your thoughts on the younger generation and and parents and the way we parent that um, you find that is most problematic? Yeah. On the one hand, I just got to say, like, I do empathize that the environment itself is way more challenging than when you and me grew up, right? Like, I'm probably the last generation that remembers life without internet. We didn't, I grew up without dopamine machines surrounding me. So I empathize that the environment is way harder. And so you're trying to, like, you're trying to raise them in environment that feeds a lot of the terrible things that are, that are horrible for their upbringing, right? So I can just empathize that, that, that in and of itself is a very, very challenging situation. But with that said, okay, what can we control? I think for one, to your point, like let them suffer. Obviously, I'm not saying send them into a freaking war zone or something like that, but let them get hurt. Like I, and I see this a lot in India. In India, like Indian parents have notorious reputation of being overprotective, even more so, right? And so I see it a ton with extended family where you don't even let your kid fall. If they get cut a little bit, it's okay. They don't do that. Don't, you're going to fall. Don't, don't, there's a lot of don't, don't do that. There's you're a gonna lot fall. of don't, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then what are you also telling the kid? You're telling your kid, I have no faith in you, right? If they fall, they'll get back up. And another thing which you put beautifully is it's okay to feel what you feel. A lot of times parents, and it's coming from a good place. Don't worry. Don't stress. Don't be scared. Don't be nervous. We always say, don't feel what you feel. That's rejecting that feeling. Instead of saying, I love what you said. It's okay. Feel what you feel. Be with it. Be like, Mm -hmm. experience that emotion fully. To your point about stillness, like, it's understandable for a kid to try to do everything they can to avoid an uncomfortable feeling. Forget about kids. Adults do it. Adults will do everything we can to distract themselves from themselves. That's right. You know, That's Carl right. Jung, and, and you heard me say this before when we first met, Carl Jung said people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. Adults right. do this, let alone a child yeah. whose prefrontal cortex hasn't even been fully formed yet, That's right? right? So, but, so the point is it's understandable for them to do that, but as a parent, you can create the space for them to be there. Be that parent to guide them through the challenge of it. It's going to be very, very hard to sit with a challenging emotion. Acknowledging that that emotion is not negative. There's no negative emotions. There's no bad emotions. There's no good emotions. There's just emotions. And mm. any emotion when exercised beautifully, when, when channeled consciously, can be put to a, to, to a powerful, empowering, and positive use. Right? Mm. So it can not, like helping your child guide them to feel that emotion fully be with it, understand it, sit with it. Because the more they get comfortable, especially with the challenging emotions, the ones that we quote unquote frame as negative, right? Those emotions, when you master that, you master life, right? Like Mm. that's the thing. When you can master those, then it doesn't, because life's going to throw them your way. And I've seen kids today, cousins of mine who from a young age have been overprotected. Now they're in college and older. They can't handle anything life has thrown at them. Anything, anything. The littlest things, the littlest things life throws at them and they break. And it's, and it's not even their fault. You know I mean? At some point, obviously we all got to take responsibility, but it's not even their fault from, from the, I've seen these kids grow up from a young age and I've told these parents because they're family members of mine, this is not helping them. You think you're helping them, but you're not. And now you see the impact of it. Well put. Why did you go into the military? And the U.S. is something we choose to do. We don't have to do. And it didn't sound like you needed to go to the military to escape anything or for a better life. Why did you do it? So when I was very, very heavily involved in drugs and alcohol, as I said, I lost two friends to it, was heading down a very dark path. And I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. You ever seen that movie? Sure. Absolutely. That movie was the trigger that changed my life, especially that scene when you see when those two Delta snipers, Gary Gordon, Randy Sugar, they're in a chopper. They're in the Mm -hmm. air, relatively safe. And they volunteer to go on the ground, knowing that hundreds of armed enemy personnel are heading their way, knowing they have no idea when reinforcements would arrive, but they volunteer to go down to set up a defensive perimeter to protect Michael Durant and the second Black Hawk that crashed. Both of them died, but Michael Durant is still alive today because of what they did. And Mm. they received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military, posthumously, of course. And that just touched my soul. I mean, that kind of courage, I get moved talking about it, that kind of Mm. compassion, that self-sacrifice. I mean, that is the human spirit at its finest. That's humanity at its finest. Mm. And so after watching that, I read the book Black Hawk Down, started devouring every book I could find on military and life and combat. And that almost overnight got me off drugs and I wanted to join the military. I wanted to, I was living a worthless, selfish, meaningless existence, you know? And I wanted to- Were you going to school? I was in school, yeah, in Texas, uh, in Austin. But I wanted to live in a world and experience a world where the good of the group matters more than your well-being. In the Marines, nobody gives a shit. Like, nobody cares how good you feel that day. 
What matters is the men and the mission. And there's some, as, as much as there's days where I hated it, don't get me wrong. In Iraq, there were days when you absolutely hate it because you're exhausted and you don't want to go on mission. But looking back, those are some of the most beautiful moments of my life where what matters is the men and the mission, right? That matters more than you. And that's so mm. beautiful to live in that. Did you join before the war, before the war was announced, after the war, no, during the war? The, this was after 9-11. It was almost inevitable I would be going to combat, uh, which, of course, I did. Uh, but I wasn't even a U.S. citizen when I joined, so it was very challenging on my parents. Uh, hmm. And it took me about a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. I also have flat feet and scoliosis, so I had to get a medical waiver for all these conditions, which took a year and a half of literally fighting my way to go in the Marines. And the only reason I got in was because it was after the war, because otherwise these are all disqualifying conditions. But at that time, here's a young kid who wants to go Marine Corps infantry. We'll find a, we'll find a place for you. <laughs> so, uh, so I managed to get in, which I could not be more grateful for. And of course I survived, uh, but it, that, it took a little while to get in, just simply had to battle, like fight those medical disqualifications. You survived, but it, 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 my understanding is that it came close. You were in a, a couple of Com combat missions where many of your friends did not. Can you talk so, about that? Yeah, uh, I lost a friend um, in the war. He wasn't in my deploy with me. He had gone to, to Iraq right before me. We had mm. actually volunteered to go to Iraq together uh, every chance we could get. And one summer I had gone to India to visit my family. And, uh, and that summer he ended up finding a unit to go with and he was killed in IED. And when I was in Iraq, my vehicle drove over an active IED that for God knows what reason it didn't explode. Mm. Mm. so i've always struggled with that for many reasons because in my mind now like there was like for one i felt like i should not have gone on that vacation to india because him and me volunteered every chance we could get twice we were told we were going by the marines very last minute they canceled it and then mm. so i figured okay we're not going right now i'm just going to go because summers my family was in india i was going to i was going to see them and then that summer he did end up finding this third time volunteering he found a unit to go with and in my mind because he was an outstanding marine one of the greatest human beings you'll ever meet but like whenever we used to train together I would beat him by maybe a few seconds on a run or beat him by a few points on the rifle range. Uh, not because I was a better Marine. He was a way better man than I am. But as a result, in my mind, especially if I had gone out there, I should have gotten that promotion that he gotten. So I could have been in the seat where he was sitting. So I could have hit, hit with that IED. And rationally, I get it. I could have gone to war with him and he could have still died, right? I know it. bullets fly where they fly, bombs explode where they explode. You can't control that. But emotionally, it, it triggered a lot of that guilt that I didn't, honor my commitment to go with him and so when i finally did get my chance to go it was uh, we got my unit got activated three months after he after he was killed i went out mm. there with that mindset that again naively i'm not saying it was like you can't control what happens in war very naively at the time that somebody had to die i'd rather it be me than anybody else so sorry to hear that and and, and thank you for um for your service you know i um it's amazing how eager you were to become a marine and um many people are exactly the opposite i was i was the opposite at 18 19 i was like that there's no way uh, i hope i don't get recruited for anything i mean so i i do appreciate the courage and uh the reasoning why you pursued that and again sorry for um for thank the you. loss of your friend thank you um has that played a role those experiences even from childhood drug abuse you know it seems like you you were seeking for i was seeking for pleasure <laughs> It is pleasurable for you uh, to some degree, but seeking for that level of excitement, um, high energy kid, then go to the Marines. Um, your friend um, passes away in, in combat. Um, ha has that played a role in your decision making moving forward and to all the things that you do now? The Marines has shaped the very essence of who I am today. I mean, the Marines mm. was taught. It taught me the beauty of suffering. I didn't really know suffering before this. You know, a little bit as a child moving around, but like my life was not really a struggle, but Marines taught me the beauty of adversity. Marine Corps boot camp was hard, you know, it was very hard. Infantry school was challenging. So it taught me the value of going to war with yourself. It taught me the value of living for something greater than yourself. In, you mm -hmm. know, in Marine Corps boot camp, if somebody screws up, everybody gets punished for it. It taught mm -hmm. me the value of, of the very values and traits I embody today, seeking out struggle as a vehicle for enlightenment and for growth living for a mission that's higher than yourself, self-transcendence, living for a cause. You know, I believe I have to, to me, I still, to this day, I believe that 
this life that I've been gifted. I was born to great parents. As a result, I was automatically blessed with a million times more opportunities than most, right? Mm. People born into war zones, people born into hell on earth and poverty, people born into places that they end up being trafficked. And I've seen a lot of this, right? I've worked in post-conflict zones and stuff. And so to me, I owe a debt for this life that I've been gifted. Mm. Especially mm. At looking back and my vehicle drove over a bomb, why didn't mine explode? Mm. I don't know, you know? So, but the Marines shaped everything about the, the ethos and the values that embody the very essence of my being today, especially mm. the, the, the values of honor, of self-sacrifice, mm. of courage and mm. compassion, of living for something greater. That, that was everything that was birthed in me in the, by the Marines. How would you say we, um, people who've never been in a military, can try to replicate that and replicate those feelings and those, uh, those experiences and those rewards that you experienced from the Marines? Is there programs out there that you know of? Do you have one? I think hopefully you create one. I mean, I would love to. Yeah. I think create a tribe that you go suffer together. Yeah. Suffer together for a mission. I mean, it can be as small as like, I, for example, have a local hiking group in Arizona here, right? I've just, I've started a local group, hiking group that's now grown to about 60 people in our group. And mm. we go on hikes together. Some of them are very, very challenging. And when we go on hikes together, nobody gets left behind. Some people are struggling more than others. It's not about like, I especially love seeing somebody push their limits. So if I have mm. to slow down to help somebody on that hike, we mm. so be it, you right? So create little ways. It doesn't have to be as extreme mm. as the things they do. Go for hikes, suffer together. Because mm. one, when you're in that suffering, it starts revealing like suffering breaks down the masks and the facades we put on in the world. Mm. Because when you're in that pure hell of your own suffering and pain cave, it starts to reveal the essence of the human spirit. It's pure. The, the ego goes to sleep. Exactly. You stop, you stop caring about when you're so deep in the pain cave, it doesn't matter what people think about it. Like just when I did the fast um, a few days ago, right? Last week, I was after five and a half days of no food. I went for a, a five hour hike, four hours, 50 minutes, just under five hours with about 4,400 feet of elevation gain and 102 degrees. I was miserable. I was cramping. I was nauseous. I was dizzy. Were you I was hydrating? Lighted. I was hydrating, but uh, it, but in Arizona, you have to drink a lot more water than you always think yeah. you do. Yeah, and right. uh, and so I was ended up being dehydrated. I got an IV done the next day. And the 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 person I was hiking with, Melissa, she was a new um a new for a member of her group, just the first time spending there. I don't even remember the things I was saying to her. She we were just caught up yesterday, and she was like telling me some of the things. I don't remember saying it, but like hmm. all the she was saying because that filter had gone. And so the essence of me was being, now that's an extreme scenario. I'm not saying you have to go that deep, but the point is suffering breaks down the masks because none of that matters anymore. The facade we put on, the mask we wear to put on a show of how we think the world should perceive us and who we want to be, that, that is gone. And it, what reveals is the essence of the human spirit. It reveals humanity. It reveals the purity of the human experience. And if you don't like what you see when you're in there, that will reveal something for you to work on. You know, mm. when I was on this hike and uh, there was a few, five people, three of the dudes were way ahead. Melissa was hanging back with me just to help guide me. And I, my, my, the first thought in my mind was, I don't want to pass out because that would be an inconvenience to her. Mm. It wasn't, I don't want to pass out because it would affect my well-being. But I'm not, but the point I'm trying to say is not like say that in an egotistical way. I wasn't always like that. You know, if you had met the Akshay many, 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 many years ago, it would have been about me. Mm. So the point is, if you go through suffering and you see something you don't like, that's, that's okay. Now you get to work on it. Now you get to build it to the point that it becomes automated till it becomes the, the version of you where you want to embody an ideal. Like it, that ideal can become something you don't have to think about anymore, you know, but suffering reveals that it is the, it is the, you have to fight the dragon to unearth the treasure and the greatest dragon you'll ever fight is the one within. So go to war within and do it with a tribe that will support each other in that place. You know, that's why we have my group of friends here is my family, you know, like there, yeah. none of them, well, a couple of them are veterans, but I didn't, we didn't serve together, but now we've become like that because we go, we have deep talks together. It's not just physical suffering. We have deep conversations where we're vulnerable. We share our deepest stuff with each other, right? So create that space for that, for not just that physical suffering together, but the emotional one as well. You know, the emotional, the mental, all of that, when you struggle together, when you be vulnerable, open with each other, it builds that camaraderie, builds that tribe. And then you start to see that it's not just about me. It's the good of my group that matters more than me. Mm, greater the, good. That to me is the essence of humanity when you live for that, you know? I love it. I know that you're currently not married and you don't have kids. Mm -hmm. What would change if you were married with several kids? What would change? What would you 
what what do you think you'd be doing? Do you do you think that at three your kids are three and four years old, you'd be hiking, you know, fifty miles with the come on, move it, come on. And 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 to and another question that I asked when we met, I was like, who who would marry you? <laughs> And say, yeah, this is great. This is the guy that I want to. I, I'm seriously, they, somebody That's has to question. be, you know, high energy, just like you, and be willing to do some of these things. I can't see yeah. it being somebody who just kind of want to stay home. Yeah, no, fair question. So I was actually married for nine years, and my my ex wife was very supportive of the things I do. Most people think it ended because of the things that I do. That's not at all why. I'm not mm-hmm. going to get into that because it's not my place to talk about her spiritual journey. She went on mm-hmm. her path, and she, I have, you know, wish her nothing but the best. But the mm-hmm. point is, she was very supportive of it. And so it's somebody who has to, they don't have to do the things I do because you, the mother <laughs> trying to cross Antarctica, you're probably meeting like one other person on earth. But, uh, That's right. but, but they have to at least get the spirituality of it. They have to value the intensity. Because, you know, when we talked about this, when we met, like because of the things I do, the intensity at which I live my life is amplified. And the intensity doesn't just mean seeking out the depths of pain, even the pleasure, even the way I feel life, it's at an amplified intensity. And that intensity can be a bit much for somebody. After mm-hmm. my divorce, I did date somebody who thought I was too intense. It ended. Uh, so one, somebody who can, who's going to s- embrace the intensity of life in their own way and wants to feel that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, I know I do want a family. I do want to meet somebody, after, especially after Antarctica is over and, and get kids. And I'll probably tone down the things I do. Like I don't see myself maybe doing 110-day journeys across Antarctica after I have kids. But I'll never stop doing outdoor stuff. I always will do it. You can do it in smaller versions, you know, but sure. I will hundred percent, like my kids will suffer, you know, <laughs> they will. And oh, and I say that from a place of pure love, like I will make them suffer. But the thing is like, I've seen when you do that, especially a young child, they really want um, validation from their parents. So when they go through it and when they see you rewarding them from it, acknowledging from it, and they see themselves being able to transcend it. Like I've seen mm. this, like I mentor mm. some kids one kid I mentor, he's a race car driver. This kid is, he's now 18. I think I've been mentoring for the last two years since he's 16. And he, I mean, this kid's self-awareness is off the charts. Like if I was an idiot at his age mm. compared to he or him, right? Mm. His work ethic, his discipline. And when kids start seeing that, okay, if I suffer and rise, it builds, how does confidence get built? Confidence gets built two ways. It's doing hard things, then being able to see in yourself the ability to rise above that. And then, and this is an important other part that often is is not talked about as much, but then the self dialogue after that happens as well, because you can do hard things. And I've been in this point in my life where I would do hard things and always beat myself up because it wasn't hard enough. And that's also mm-hmm. a miserable way to live, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no end to that, you know? Right. So it's doing the hard things, but you have to one, let them do the hard things and then acknowledge them for the effort they put in, not for the result. Dr. Carol Dweck wrote a great book called Mindset, which I think we that's talked right. about when we met, where she talks about don't praise kids for talent, praise them for effort. That's so right. let them do hard things. Let them fall. That's how you get confident. By You don't get confident by standing in the mirror saying, I'm awesome, I'm awesome, awesome. That's like cute stuff in the law of attraction world that I think is deeply flawed. You get, yeah. you, you get confident by looking in the mirror and saying, I earned the right to say I'm awesome. You have to earn that right by doing the hard thing. You know, now I can look in the mirror and say, I'm damn proud that I did this fast, you know, like, or whatever. That's one example of many, many hard things I've done over the years. Sure. But I'm damn proud that I was able to not only push through, like no matter how bad in shape it is, I was in, I finished that hike, but I'm damn proud that the instinctual place my mind went was I don't want to pass out because I don't want to be a burden to that other person. I'm Mm. damn proud of that, you know? And so you do the hard things, then you talk to yourself and you reinforce it and it becomes this continuous cycle that keeps the evolution going. But do that for kids. That's how my kids will suffer and I'll acknowledge them for it and we'll suffer together. I will never, that's another thing. One last point. Like I, I see parents do this. Like I've seen parents will say to their kids, you know, don't drink and do drugs. And they're getting hammered and in, in, in doing drugs all weekend. You can't right. say one thing and do another. Yep. They are going to follow what you do, not what you say. So 100%. if you live your life at the highest ideal, if you embody the ethos and the, and the values you want to embody in your kid, you have to embody it. You have to. Yeah, I think it. I'm a better man as a result of being a father because oh, I, I have bet. to kind of resolve many of my uh, poor habits. Yeah, because I, I know that, hey, they're, they're looking, they're watching. Exactly. And they're learning. And, they're and, and you know, I can see my son kind of sort of do everything I do now. Yeah. Um, even if he doesn't know that, you know, he's doing the things that, I, that I'm doing, that, that I typically do. Walks yep. how I walk, expresses himself yeah. in a similar way. That's such a great point. Thank you for that. That's, that's a great point. And I do hope, I would love, I can't wait to see 
uh, your offsprings and and <laughs> it'll probably be you know mountain climbing at three and four doing Spartan raises at ten. Um, Joseph Campbell and uh, and you quoted him in your book, and I love this quote, and it's and it reads like this. If your bliss is just fun and excitement, then you are on the wrong path. Sometimes pain is bliss. Yeah. So it resonates, right? It, it resonates because if, you know, I joke around when I go to San Diego, I was like, why would I want to live here? It's always perfect weather, nice and sunny, yeah. 70 something degrees. Yeah. Uh, why would I want to live here? I I wouldn't appreciate the the great weather. I want you know, yeah. bad winters with snow and like, you know, below zero yeah. So then, you know, prepare for the fall and then, you know, the spring and the summer and then, right. So, um, there, there's that element of it for sure. Yeah. Tell us about Antarctica and, um, and your, your, the expedition that you will, um, that you will go through in November of 2023. So what I'm currently training for is to do a 110-day solo 1,700-mile coast-to-coast crossing of the entire continent of Antarctica, where I'll be dragging a 400-pound sled with all my supplies in temperatures as low as minus 40 degrees with hurricane-force winds and one of, some, one of the most hostile, unforgiving environments on the planet for 12-plus hours a day across the entire continent. And if accomplished, once accomplished, it'll be the first ever crossing of the continent without kites or dogs purely human power just just man hauling that sled and that'll be i'm four months away from this daunting and never before accomplished journey you know i every time i hear you say that and this is maybe the third or fourth time i'm, I'm just like uh, you know dumbfounded and it's um as i said um back when we met i said you know i almost wish that i that you were not such a great person and such a a uh, wonderful human being because i'd be like yeah yeah go for that shit and and you know suffer you know but you're so and you're so such an amazing person i'm like oh man i i you know i'm like you know it, it pains me right but obviously this is this is your journey and we have to honor that why are you doing this you know like any any great goal there's a two umbrella uh motivations a selfish and a selfless so selfishly I am seeking, you can call it enlightenment, you know, it, when you get to be in that level of sil- stillness and silence. I mean, I'll be, for portions of the journey, the most isolated person in the entire world geographically. I mean, level of solitude that is going to be so intense and so profound. In that silence, you really start to hear. And you hear the things you don't hear in this world, in the distractions of this world. To me, you're accessing the door to God, to the divine. You're accessing that door to the divine. And as beautifully daunting and extremely hard as it is, what you find there is so profoundly beautiful. And I seek that. I want to open doors into the human soul that I've rarely, if ever, been opened before. You know, not like not just my own soul, but into the human soul. And and I and the suffering is not the reason I go. The suffering is the means. It's not the purpose. Hmm. The purpose is the self transcendence that you have to. You, you like suffering is a training ground for self transcendence because when you're so deep in that hell because you know in antarctica life is also amplified like the volume of life is dialed up 110 percent. so everything you feel more intensely the highs are so much higher but the lows are so much lower and so Mm. in this one in condensed microcosm of time you get to experience multiple lifetimes worth of the human condition and that is so profoundly beautiful you know so i go for that journey to awaken my own inner buddhahood to awaken my own divinity to tap into that voice of god to seek self-transcendence and then selflessly, I, as I was saying earlier, you know, I believe I owe a debt for this life that I've been gifted. Like I mm. get to go to Antarctica as much as I will suffer immensely out there. And I will. It's a privilege that I get to choose my own suffering. Most mm. people in the world do not get to even choose their own suffering because they're mm. born into hell on earth. That's right. So I'm not unaware of that, right? I, it's a constantly, I'm grateful for it. I could not be more grateful for it. And because I get to, there's a responsibility that I have. When you play so far out on the edge, the, way, the places I get to play, you're opening doors that are rarely if ever opened before. And because of that, I have to bring the treasures back from those places I get to go into the human, into, into serving my human family and helping others navigate their own polar storms, helping others. Everybody's got their own, everybody suffers. Everybody's battling their own polar storms. Everybody's got an Antarctica to cross. But mm. because I go so far out there, I get to access wisdom 
and treasures that are not otherwise revealed. And so my responsibility to pay back this debt I owe to earn this life I've been gifted is to bring back that wisdom and to help others. I mean, when we first met, it's because I was speaking at an event. I was invited to speak at that event because of these things that I do, because of the wisdom I've gained. I get, I'm a humble messenger of what these places reveal when you get to go there. And so I just get to be the messenger and it's my job to, my responsibility to bring that wisdom back. Why three and a half months? I, I get it, but why three and a half? Why not a month and a half? Why not, you know, 600 miles? Why 1,700 miles? So right? the, why that extreme? How did you come up with these numbers? So this is kind of the last remaining big feat in Antarctic exploration that hasn't happened yet. To do a full coast-to-coast crossing without wind power, without kites or dogs has not happened. So part of the draw is you're stretching the very limits of human endurance. I mean, and I don't say this in an egotistical way, just the nature of the feat alone, once accomplished, will be the, one of the greatest feats of human endurance ever. That's just how big this feat is. And so stretching the limits of human endurance to see not just, it doesn't just push my own limits. It's expanding humanity, right? I mean, I can't tell you, you told me this earlier. I can't tell you how many people write to me to this day. And they will say to me that I, like I was going through a hard session of the gym and I thought about you and it allowed me to push a little harder than I would have otherwise, mm. you know? So I want, I, I want, and, and, and there's plenty of people who've came before me who are that for me. So it's, it's the cycle that we're all in together. And because, and so pushing that edge, doing something that's never been done before, I get to do that for others. And so that's just what it takes. Like to do a coast to coast crossing, that's how long it takes. And 110 days is, I mean, it's borderline impossible in 110 days, let alone in 70 days. I mean, the daily distance you have to cover dragging yeah. a 400 pound sled, 110 days is kind of stretching the Antarctic season as almost as long as you can possibly stretch it. That number wasn't entirely random. It was very well calculated, not at all random. It was very calculated based on looking at other expeditions, how much of a daily distance is even somewhat feasible how much, how long can you stretch the Antarctic season? Because Antarctica really has two seasons, summer and winter. And summer is not exactly summer, right? Antarctic summer is still pretty savage and cold. Um, yeah. But th- once you start getting into Antarctic winter, planes can't even fly in and out to pick you up. So you, so Antarctica, the 110 days was taking all this data from previous expeditions, combining with as really as long as the Antarctic season can be stretched to, to attempt to do that. But even in 110 days, I mean, the expedition manager, at ALE, which is Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, they're the one who manage the logistics for all adventurers in Antarctica, has said that more than likely anyone who tries this who tries this will probably fail. That's just how big the journey is. That's how daunting and what it is. What does There's failure reason. look like? So, I mean, a worst case failure means death, but that's not it's not as dangerous as like Alex Honnold's free soloing up. Not remotely yeah. as dangerous. It's not yeah. as dangerous. The draw to me is not the danger, it's the suffering is the draw to me. It's far more suffering than even mountain climbing. Like I've done a lot of mountaineering, way more suffering than Everest, but not as dangerous. So now obviously you can't eliminate that possibility. It's still there, but it's not like as much as let's say if I was climbing K2 or something. But right. the um uh, so the the uh, other factors are just, I mean, the cold, the, the hostility of that. And more than likely failure, if I don't succeed, it's just I couldn't cover the distance in time. So I could be 100, 100 days there and I, you know, let's say instead of 1,700 miles, I make it 1,400. And, but uh, who's going to know this? Who's going to get you? How are you communicating with me? You're there alone in this remote Yeah, so I'll have, a, I'll have a, a, a live tracker following along. ALE, who is Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions, they have their base camp called Union Glacier where they will be managing all my logistics every evening. In fact, I'll be with the satellite phone checking in with them. And uh, let's say, for example, I've only made, I don't know, I'm just throwing out a number, 1,400 miles after 110 days. They'll come pick me up from that spo- that point mm. because, you know, that's because they last season, uh, that was this is last year in November, December, the Antarctic season, three, three expeditions attempted a partial crossing of Antarctica. This is not a full coast-to-coast crossing like I'm, I'm planning. And all three failed, even at a partial crossing, simply just because they couldn't cover the distance they needed to cover in the time frame. In on your sled, uh, part of the four hundred pounds of stuff that you're carrying there, does that include enough food for energy to get you through? That's the the, the heaviest part of the sled is food. I'll be it'll be about I'll be eating about sixty two to sixty six hundred calories a day. And even then I'll be burning eight to 10,000. So I'll be, uh, that's why I'm actually putting on weight. I'm trying to get fat before Antarctica because I will lose a ton of weight out there. Uh, Fasting for five days in a row and then going <laughs> hiking is that was not, not the way <laughs> to, you, you no, probably lost the, weight. I lost 16.6 pounds in five right. and a half days, but that was for a few other reasons. Now I've stopped no yeah. more fasting till Antarctica. <laughs> 
now I'm working on getting fat and getting fat fast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, why? I know, I know you had to cut off your finger. Why did you have to do that to do this expedition? So when I was in Antarctica a year and a half ago on another expedition, I got frostbite on these two fingers. Those Quit are your middle, for those that are not watching. Oh, yeah, sorry. A right ring finger and yeah. left middle finger. The frostbite okay. was quite bad. I think you saw the picture when we met. It was That's very right. black. It was quite dark. Now, on the right ring finger, the tip of it was black and completely died. I had to get it cut off. It was just, you know, it, it, was, it was dead. That finger was dead. Yeah. It had to be removed. On the left middle finger, it recovered fully. It was a full finger. But the problem is, once you get frostbite, you're always more prone to frostbite. So when I was in the Arctic, I was just in the Arctic about a month and a half ago on a training expedition. And um, I was out there for about 29 days on the ice. And it got, it got to like minus 37, you know, pretty cold. And even on warmer, relatively warm days, like minus 5, minus 10, the tip of that left finger, middle finger was giving me a significant amount of trouble. Like there were days where every other finger was fine, but that finger felt cold. Hmm. And now because it's gotten frostbite for the rest of my life, that finger will be, especially the tip, will be more prone to frostbite. Hmm. So to me, that's a huge liability. I would imagine, imagine myself, I'm 60 days in Antarctica and I'm crushing the distance. I'm hitting the time that I need to hit in the distance I need to hit. And if that finger gets frostbite, my expedition's over. So to me, being that it was a huge liability, I decided to prophylactically have it removed. So it was a good finger and it was quite a challenge because no, no doctors wanted to cut it off. They were ethically like, it's not, it's a good finger. We can't cut it off. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it took a lot of convincing and my mom's support. My, we got this done when I was in India. My mom was the one who convinced the doctor to cut it off. Because what Jeez. kind of mom would say, cut off my son's finger unless exactly. there's a really good reason. And so cut off my son's good finger. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's still working. No, it's still functional. <laughs> exactly. But you need to cut it off. Exactly. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it was fine in the normal world, totally fine in the normal world. But in cold, it was giving me trouble. Like I met a doctor in, 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 the, in the Arctic who said that he, his recommendation was not only do I not go to Antarctica, his recommendation was I stop doing cold weather expeditions. To me, that wasn't an option. That's not going to happen. So I cut off the finger, cut off the tip of the finger. You, you mentioned earlier on that you have a blood disorder. Mm -hmm. How can that, what is that blood disorder? How can that affect your expedition? So my blood disorder is called thalassemia, which, mm -hmm. um, so normal, normal, uh, normal guy will have about 14 to 16 grams of hemoglobin. I have about 11. So hemoglobin transports oxygen through the blood, the body. Mm -hmm. Mine is significantly lower. So less oxygen flowing through the body is less than ideal for anybody, let alone an endurance athlete at my level, right? Because you need oxygen to flow through the body. So the doctor who removed the first finger and both fingers, he said, like, almost certainly you, uh, uh, your thalassemia contributed to your frostbite. I mean, you have less oxygen flowing through your, especially your extremities, right? And so when you're, and when you're at the South Pole, you're at altitude. You're at about 9,000 feet. The South Pole is at over 9,000 feet. Uh, so you're not talking altitude. You're talking extreme cold and you have less oxygen flowing through your blood. Uh, so it's less than ideal, but... You know, it's uh, it's not going to stop me from doing this. Most activities are less than ideal than you've done them, right? So even ultra endurance marathons or ultra endurance uh, activities, you, mm -hmm. you've done those. And those are less than I've ideal. Many so. ultra marathons. I mean, like I said, two doctors told me that Marine Corps boot camp would kill me because of my yeah. thalassemia. So yeah. I actually had to go see a third doctor who finally gave me the letter. And then I took that letter to uh, MAPS, the military entrance process. How station. is it that with lower human uh, hemoglobin levels than uh, normal? you can accomplish all it doesn't in my mind doesn't make biological sense so what's happening there are you is there a way that your hemoglobin is rising um I mean, either to, to the will. exogenously or something how are you uh, do you still measure your hemoglobin levels and it's yeah, still last time I, low? Measured it, I think it was 11 point something yeah so it's still low uh it's still in the 11s and you can't you can't from my understanding you can't cure that like there's no way to yeah cure that's that. right but so I mean, what's the, happening because you do need to you need to transport oxygen to yourselves to for active for physical energy yeah. and activity um particularly an extreme activity so exactly. any idea what's happening physiologically that you're able to accomplish these goals certainly no expert in what's happening physiologically but to me it's the will like the mind can transcend the limitations of the body when mm. you exercise the will and when you tap into that what we are capable of is awe-inspiring i mean people literally even on this fast were like dude how are you still alive you know, mm. I've done so many things that I've, I've gotten heat exhaustion multiple times, like the therapy, because I push that edge. But the will is is limitless. You know, I mean, mm. you can never measure that in a lab. You know, you can never measure that in a lab. There were a point when doctors thought it would be impossible to climb Everest without supplementary oxygen. 
Reinhold Mesner went out and did it, you know? So it's, it's, that's all it is. And this wasn't, this didn't happen overnight. You know, I wasn't a person who could who do the things I do overnight. I built that will up. So wherever you are in your journey, start by pushing it a little bit, then push it a little further, then push it a little further. But when you tap into that, I mean, it's awe inspiring to hmm. see the power of that human spirit. It's, 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 it, I mean, it is to me, that's like one of the, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time from Vince Lombardi, he says, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment to all he holds dear is that moment when he has worked his heart out in good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. And when you mm -hmm. exercise the will, when you go to war with yourself and you mm -hmm. tap into that, you feel something, you're tapping into this, yeah. the essence of the human spirit and that victory is, it's life. You know, then that's what we participate in marathons and, and exactly. Spartan races and, and obstacle courses and things of the sort. To, to, it's for a feeling. Mm -hmm. I remember when I, which I actually, after my conversations with you, I think um, I'm going to go back and do one of those obstacle courses, actually. Awesome. Awesome. So um, it, it's, it's, it's inspiring. And, you. and, and you're looking for a feeling. It's not about health. I could do many things to be healthy. Yeah. It's about how do I want to feel? Do I want to feel like, wow, I, I did something that it's beyond what I thought I could ever do. Yeah. Um, it, when I did a marathon, even half marathons, so there, there is by the, by the end, um, a spiritual, uh, feeling of almost like your, your, your God or God is, you know, when you're hitting the wall, yeah. for example, right. When you just, when you, when you're so cramped up, on that 25th mile, you have a mile to go. What takes you to the 26th mile, right? Um, God, people, the energy, the, 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 the camaraderie, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and that's a beautiful, um, a beautiful experience that I, really? that I think many people don't get a chance to, to experience. Yeah. It is an experience to God when you, when you go so far into that, what I call the quote unquote pain cave. Because, you know, on the one hand, it's the human will, but it's a, in my mind, it's a duality. Like I'm tapping into my own will. And again, yeah, whatever yeah. your paradigm around this is, if you don't believe in God, the universe, something that I think there's like, I've, and I've started to experience, I mean, I've experienced this tangibly. Like you're, there's something also beyond me that allows me to push forward further than I can even believe my own, mm. what I can, what I think I can do. And mm. you get to, you get to taste that when you go so far out onto the edge. Actually, tell us about Bodhi. Who's Bodhi? So Bodhi is my little buddy here. It's a stuffed pillow. Um, mm. it, so this was inspired by the movie Castaway. Uh, if mm. you remember Castaway, where Tom Hanks has that little volleyball he talks to called Wilson. Yep. Right? So inspired by that, to, I'll be spending 110 days completely alone, right? Completely alone. No other human interaction. And so inspired by Castaway, I created this little stuffed pillow that I named Bodhi. It's got a laughing Buddha on it. Why laughing Buddha? Because it has this two elements that to me are some of the most important tools I will need out on the ice. One is a sense of humor. You have to be able to laugh when things get bad. You absolutely need to keep that sense of humor. And two, the Buddha is for me, this is a very spiritual journey to awaken my own inner Buddhahood, right? That we mm. all have to awaken mm. that inner divinity. And I named him Bodhi because Bodhi in Buddhism is short for Bodhisattva, which is a being that has attained enlightenment, but chooses to sacrifice going to Nirvana to help others on earth who are suffering. It's a concept mm. I deeply resonate with and I very much feel is like the ethos I'm striving for. So he's my little buddy that I chat with when I'm alone out there. I ex uh, experienced it when I was solo in the Arctic and mm. I will be taking him in Antarctica as my little uh, little buddy. And, and it's, it's amazing how quickly you lose the sense that this is just a stuffed pillow. Mm. I mean, two, first day you recognize it, it feels a little weird. By day two, day three, it's gone. And you're having dialogues that are as real as a conversation that you and me are having right now. <laughs> So that's your, that's your Wilson. That's my um, Wilson. And so at some point you're talking to him, Hey buddy, are you okay? Hey, is everything like, wh what kind of conversations? You know, we're having dialogue. So for example, like I'll give you a good story about how, how fascinating it, it how real Bodhi becomes. You know, when I was in the Arctic on the third expedition, I was in three expeditions. The third one was 10 days alone. Usually while I'm cooking in the tent of the vestibule of the tent, I'm boiling snow for my water. And while I'm cooking, Bodhi's sitting in the corner and we're chatting about the day, chatting about what's going through my mind or quote unquote chatting, right? And then after I finish cooking, I bring Bodhi into the tent. I chat a little bit before I go to sleep. So it was day six out there, day six. And only, I'm only six days alone so far. And I get him back in my tent after boiling my snow and uh, I'm about to go to bed. And I realized that I left Bodhi out in the vestibule. So I, I open the tent door, I grab Bodhi and I go, Bodhi, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to leave you out there. 
And the craziest part is after six days alone, I wasn't just saying the words, I'm so sorry. I genuinely felt guilty. There was mm. an emotional feeling of guilt and sadness. Like I left a friend out there, like I left my puppy out there, you know? And this was only after six days alone. So it, to me, the, the value of this is it's actually giving you a place to go that you can talk to. Again, in my mind, you're talking to God, right? You're talking to, yeah. you can call it talking to your subconscious, but by giving this external force, this, this thing to attach onto, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm allowing um, that dialogue to be a little bit more two way, even though, again, ultimately, of course, it's me talking to myself, right? But, um, but it's not, but now I have a face to talk to. That's why I love and will in Castaway how real it becomes. And I totally get it. Like, I mm. totally get how real that would become. And so I have dialogues and there's like, there were days where I'll be sitting out there and like, I'll be like, just like I, just like in Castaway, he says it. she's like, I know, Will, like Tom Hanks will say, I know Wilson. And it's like, he, and I'll be like, Bodie, I know, I know you should. It's like, he's telling me, but things I need to know in myself, like, I know I should be doing this, you know? And it's, um, it's really fascinating and it, it's incredibly valuable. Like it's an incredibly valuable tool to, um, and if you apply it to the real world, I'm not saying you need to have like a being that you talk to, but what the value is and how the, the application here for anybody listening is take time for stillness so you can have a dialogue with yourself that you're not having otherwise, right? Right. So you can hear, so you can engage in that voice that is otherwise being silenced by the million things we do to distract ourselves from ourselves. Because we do, I mean, even the quote unquote positive things like working and working out, which right. are much better than let's say drinking or doing drugs, of course, but often, very often, we are doing them only to distract ourselves from ourselves. But when you we have an opportunity uh, yeah. uh, to paraphrase Carl Jung, right, to bring our subconscious to the conscious. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Mm -hmm. And that to me, I'll say that again, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Stillness, Amen. being able to dialogue with Bodhi, being able to dialogue with yourself, it, that's what it does. It makes the unconscious conscious. Love it. Is your expedition through Antarctica, is that going to be a v filmed and will it be uh, a Netflix show or something like that? We are, creating a doc we are creating a documentary around it and working with the team in Hollywood. They came and filmed when I was in the Arctic. They filmed me in Iceland, in uh, Mexico when I came out of the darkness retreat, training tire dragging here in Arizona. In Antarctica, I'll be completely alone. So it'll just be me with the GoPro. Uh, filming like a video journal as I descend into madness out there <laughs> with my mm. conversations with Bodhi. But we will be then turning it into a documentary to tell the story, whether it goes on Netflix or wherever. Uh, we'll find out soon enough, but uh, it will be a documentary we're creating. How will you get? Uh, how how will you stay charged up with all your electronic devices? Antarctica twenty four hours twenty four hours daylight. Uh, so I have a solar solar panel, um, mm. and it's there's no problem getting plenty of sun out there. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Despite the cold weather. Right. Yeah. Despite How much is this costing you? So the journey uh, is going to cost me seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Where's flying. that money? In what? What part of it cost? What, what, what's that, the yeah. breakdown of that? So uh, that number is obviously not something I randomly came up with. ALE, Antarctic yeah. Logistics and Expeditions, they gave me that quote. That's how much it costs to, I mean, because going to these places, like just flying to Antarctica is $60,000 about. Hmm. Uh, flying from Union Glacier Camp to Bay of Wales, which is my starting point on the other end of Antarctica, that's like a 12-hour flight with three fuel stops. We'll be landing hmm. in the middle of Antarctica, filling up fuel barrels. That flight alone is like a $200,000, $250,000 flight because it's multiple pl like flights and the fuels to get there. Get a normal Antarctic season for adventurers is 85 days. They're extending the season just for me, which means there has to be a pilot on staff, a doctor, logistical support team, all of these factors you're paying for, the flights, the, in, the pickup flight from the other coastline of Antarctica, you know, all of these things, the, the, the staff, the logistics, the fuel, the safety measures, the permits. There's a permit that you need to go to Antarctica. All of these things combined uh, is what ALE has given me that uh, that number. And so right wow. now I'm in big time fundraising mode because I've, I've invested my heart, my soul, my body, my mind, my spirit. I've lost two fingers for this money. I mean, I've spent over half a million dollars of my own money mm -hmm. on previous expeditions as well as self-fund in the documentary. I'm fully in in every single way on this. And now uh, I'm, I'm reaching out for outside support as much as possible to help fund this. And so not just for me to cross Antarctica, but so we can tell the story and inspire yeah. other people to, to make their own crossings. So for, for my listeners right now, I, I think that um, we have an opportunity. I, and I, this is the first time I do this. I, I, don't, I, I don't fundraise uh, for anything. But I think this is an important, um, uh, important event to um, contribute. 
whether it's five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can, yeah. um, to Akshay's cause here. Um, he's inspired me in ways that I mean, I've just touched on it a little bit here, but um, my life is better just from my interactions with Akshay. So I want to make sure that um, you're properly, especially you use whatever platform I can to have my audience contribute to your to Thank your you. cause. So how can they do so? So at greatsoulcrossing.com, great, S-O-U-L, greatsoulcrossing.com. There's the crowdfunding okay. page that's up there. Uh, and, and like you said, any, every bit makes a difference. It's, we just launched this, we're building, and it's continued to grow from here. Well, listen, um, I, I think we'll, we'll speak again or be in touch before November. November. What, what actu- what's the actual date that you will leave? And- End October, I'll be flying down to Chile uh, from Santiago to a place called Punta Arenas, mm-hmm. the southern tip of Chile, and then sometime towards very early November, flying from uh, Punta Arenas to Antarctica to Union Glacier Camp, and then from Union Glacier Camp to Bay of Wales. Are you going to spend time in Chile just hanging out by the beach before you uh, go? I or? that point in your mind. So, I mean, even now, when talking about it, saying it, knowing that it's less than four months away, I got butterflies in my stomach rising as I'm speaking these words to you. So at that point, I'll be so, I won't be able to relax on a beach. I'll just be like, I just want to go now. You know, you need to get, it's go time. Like, so my parents wanted to come drop me off. A few friends were, I'm like, don't come when I drop me off. Come on the back end, come pick me up in Chile. But when I'm going out there, I don't want to be thinking about what I'm leaving behind. I need to be thinking about what's, what's ahead. Um, Yeah. It's well, terrible. I'm rooting for you, brother. Uh, I am rooting for you. Um, thank you for, for doing this really for all of us uh you're doing this for for the rest of us to, to um you know i'm always interested in the conversation of um how can we live better with age sure. right so um typically for many people they decline with age so from yeah. 50 to 60 60 old you get you know sore joints and uh back pain and whatever 70 you kind of yeah. hunched and all this kind of stuff to happen 80 forget I am I am very much into the conversation of how can we do better at 60 than we did at 50 or mm-hmm. 50 at 40 or 70 and 60. As you get older, and I see it all the time with people where they're stronger, fitter, better health, their lipids come down, right? Their prostate health improves, everything improves as they get older. You know, I have a I have a patient that, you know, he's like, you know, deadlifting 250 pounds at 75 awesome. years old, which he's, I mean, he's. He couldn't do that in his 50s. Yeah. Um, So he's literally has gotten stronger with age, right? So what you're doing here and um, you're helping us deal with our fears in a more healthy way. Um, You're you're helping us um, with knowing that, you know, uh, suffering is a word that's used negatively, but in in the proper context and the context that you present it is an opportunity for us to live better. Yeah. And in this case, you know, in my world with age. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan. I root for you and you really have uh, changed my life uh, for the better. And I thank you for that. It means the world to hear that. It, it, when knowing that my journey is making a difference to others on theirs, it's, it warms my heart, man. So appreciate you saying that, brother. Thank you for being on. I'll have your website, uh, on the show, in the show notes. And is there any other website or anything that people should, uh, follow you or if you want uh, to follow along Twitter? Uh, Instagram is primarily where I'm at, uh, Fearvana, F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A, uh, okay. and then obviously Fearvana.com. But at Fearvana, I share the training process, all the all the, all the the things I'm going through <laughs> before I even get there. All right. We'll link it all up. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Thanks for being on. This is Dr. Geo signing off. I will talk to you next time. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. (laughs) It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy 
to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.